0: you guys doing good sweet sweet I'm great I'm great thanks for asking so um, just a heads up for you guys one is that um, it's a reminder if you did not hear um, all of our messages are being uploaded uh, onto um, Spotify and like Apple podcast and so you can you can hear um, the messages uh, if you miss a week or if you're just like hey, that was really good, or you're like, yo, that was so bad, I have to hear it again. Uh, You can go, uh, you can check it out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Anywhere you can find podcasts, you should be able to find it. Just look, Central Students, it should be there. Uh, Last week, we did not uh, record for the podcast uh, because we did a little bit different. We kind of did a circle type thing, which was cool. Um, But this week should be up there. Uh, Then the last two that should be up there are, uh, we did two weeks through Psalm 23. So just so you guys can know about that. But So, um, you guys doing good? Cool. All right, just making sure. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, as I do with all of these, uh, just to give you a little bit of context. So, we're going through a series called Hills and Valleys. And really, the whole idea of this is we're kind of looking at specific Psalms. Uh, and really, you know, one the whole thought is that, you know, as Christians, uh, our life is not made up of perfect, perfectly good days all the time. Right. We have good days. We have bad days Our like, you know, we have hills, there's valleys. Um, And but the trick, though, is for us to understand, hey, that like God is the same in the hill on the hilltop as he is in the valley. Right. That that God is consistent. And we want to be able to say, how can I have a thriving relationship with God, no matter whether I'm in the hill or whether uh, hills or whether I'm in the valleys. Right. And we kind of really see a good, good examples of this as we look through the Psalms. So one thing I encourage you is that maybe if you're struggling, if you're kind of like, you know, you're kind of in a valley season of life, I encourage you to like read the Psalms. Um, you know, because a lot of the psalms and all the psalms that we're looking at in this series is we're looking at specific psalms that were written by David. OK, um, you know, so and because a lot of times we can get like an understanding of what he's going through, you know, in that season of life. Right. In which he's writing that it allows us to be able to see, OK, well, how does he worship or how does he pray during the season of life that he's in? So, you know, and David is known for a lot of different things in the Scripture. Right. David is known for being a, a great shepherd. Right. David is, is known for being really kind of like the ideal king, like the, like the ideal king uh, over Israel. 1 First, uh, First Samuel 13 says that David was a man after God's own heart. David was a wonderful worshiper, right? Of the, of the, of the 150 Psalms, David wrote 75 of them. Right, so we see that David had a rich prayer life. He had a deep and rich life of worship and dedication towards God. However, with all of these virtues and with all of these wonderful things about David, he was still an imperfect and sinful man. Of all of David's failings, probably none of them jumps to the forefront of our mind more than when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, which would be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're unfamiliar with the story, I'll go ahead and just explain it real quick for you. I encourage you to go read it. But ultimately, David is the king of Israel, and he's, and he's out on his rooftop at night, and he sees a woman, Bathsheba, and she is bathing. Now, before you're like, what? She's bathing? Like, what? It's basically that this was part of their, you know, ritual baths that they would do on a regular basis, right? So she was, she was bathing, and he sees her, and he is, and he lusts after her. So what he does is he's the king, right? He can do whatever. He can pretty much, like, the king can have whoever he wants, whenever he wants. So he tells his servants to go get Bathsheba, bring her to him. And ultimately what happens is he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. But there's a problem with that. That is that Bathsheba was a married woman. She's a married woman. Now, obviously, like, you know, we don't know all the details there, but it very much seems like that David did something David, like, like if, if the king calls you to go, like, if you're Bathsheba, it's not like she's, you know, being promiscuous, right? Right? I mean, she's, she, she has no choice in the matter. So David takes advantage of his authority. He commits adultery with this woman who was married. She gets pregnant. And in order to cover up his sin, what he does is he has... Her husband, Uriah, who is serving faithfully in the the military, faithfully with the armies of Israel. Basically, he has it to where Uriah is put on the front lines. Then there's a, a portion of the army that moves forward. And then he tells them to withdraw from Uriah so that ultimately he is killed. So David takes advantage of a woman. He commits adultery. And he has her husband murdered to cover it up. Now, this is a man that is, that is, as I just said, is said to be the ideal king. This is a man that Scripture says is a man after God's own heart. This is a man that wrote 75 of the 150 Psalms. But he was imperfect. And he was sinful. Ultimately, what happens is Nathan, the prophet, comes and he confronts David. All right, we talked about this last week. What do the prophets do? They speak to the people on behalf of God. Nathan goes to David and says, hey, you have sinned, calls him out. David's committed this terrible sin, and and when Nathan confronts him, David is is forced to come face-to-face with the reality of his sin. And ultimately, he also has to deal with the consequences of his sin. The consequences of his sin are that the child that Bathsheba is pregnant with ultimately dies. David's household and his family is ripped apart. And throughout David's life, there's violence and there's strife amongst his own family. The reality of the sin weighs heavy on David, ultimately leading to his prayer of confession and repentance that we have in Psalm 51. Now, we all make mistakes. Even all of us, we all sin, even intentionally. What we're going to talk about tonight is if you are a Christian, what do you do with your sin, right? Last week, we talked about this idea of how we're forgiven, right? This idea that Jesus was forsaken so that you wouldn't have to be. That because God's wrath and God's justice was poured out onto Jesus, that you and I can expect nothing but God's grace and his mercy and his goodness, but even, even then, right, even though God is a forgiving and merciful God, he is still righteous and just. And this, there's this weird thing for us as Christians, right? Like, I don't continue to live in sin. I don't abuse God's grace. However, what do I do when I sin? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read in Psalm 51, starting at verse 1. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness Let the bones that you have broken. Rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my trans- all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, those of us in this room, we probably have never done anything to the extent of what David has done, right? I don't think anyone in this room has murdered anybody. I don't think any of us in this room have probably done things to the extent of what he has done. However, all of us in this room sinned. All of us in this room have sinned, and some of us in this room have committed sins that we're ashamed to even think about, we're ashamed to even acknowledge, we're ashamed to even bring up. And while we may not have done specifically what David has done here, we all relate to this idea of wearing the guilt of our sins. One of the great struggles of the Christian life is coming to grips with the reality of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness. That really, the, the number one thing that makes the gospel offensive and so difficult for people to digest and to accept is the reality that they are sinners and that there is nothing that they can do to fix their sinfulness other than to rely on the mercy of God. The gospel is offensive to tell someone that they are a sinner. Not that there's good in them. That there is no good in them. They are wicked all the way through. So what people do is they seek to avoid this topic. They seek to avoid talking about sin. But here's the thing, guys. If there is no bad news, then there is no good news. See, if there is no sin, then there is nothing for you to be saved from. And to share the gospel without talking about sin and the realities of sin is to not share the gospel. But all of us as Christians have to deal with this idea of wrestling with our sins. We have to wrestle with our sins. See, often we try to soften the gospel by avoiding this topic, but we can't. The difficult part of this reality for Christians is that you never cease to be aware of your sinfulness. As long as we live in this world, we wrestle with our sin nature. And please know this, that wrestling with sin and wrestling against sin is one of the truest marks of the Christian life. One of the truest marks that you are indeed a Christian is that you wrestle against sin that we fight against sin. See, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one sins and the other doesn't. The difference is what do you do about it? Where do you go with your sin and with your brokenness? This is something that's imperative for us to understand. Is that confession of sin to God is a gift of God that brings relief and comfort to the mature Christian. What do we do with our sin is that we confess it to God. Just like we saw here in Psalm 51, is that we confess our sins to God. And many of us, though, we see confession as a burden or something that we try to avoid, right? Confessing our sin is something that we seek to avoid doing. And I believe the reason that we we do this is because we have a misunderstanding of what it is, or we have a misunderstanding of God's grace and God's forgiveness. Tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at David's confession and his plea for forgiveness, and we're going to see beautiful joy that we have in confessing our sins to God. Cuz that's the thing guys, is that confessing our sins to God is a joy. Not something to be to, not something to dread, not something to be fearful of, not something to regret, but it's something that we should take joy that we can confess our sins to God. Ultimately what we want to do tonight is we want to walk away having answered this question. If I am a Christian, how should I respond to my sin? There's three things that we're going to talk about. First is conviction. Second is confession, and third is repentance. So there's conviction, confession, repentance. That is the Christian's response to their sin. Conviction, confession, repentance. So the first thing we're going to look at is conviction. In John 16, Jesus gives this statement. John, J- Jesus is with his disciples, and he's been explaining to them that he is going to die, he's going to, uh, le- and he's going to re- be raised from the dead, he's going to ascend, he's going to leave them. Naturally, if you're his disciples, I mean, you've been with this guy every day for, you know, three and a half years. That idea that he's going to now leave you is sad. They're sad about this. So he seeks to comfort them. And what he does is in John 16, verse 7, he says this. Because nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we know that Jesus is ultimately here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? You with me? Are we awake? Cool. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting what he says, right? Isn't it interesting that he is telling the disciples that it is better for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit than for them to be walking with Jesus in the flesh? I think that's something that we need to wrap our minds around, is that it is better to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to be walking with Jesus in the flesh. That's what he's telling his disciples in this moment. Right, the Holy Spirit is a gift. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, is a gift. And then Jesus will go on and he will explain one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, he says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see here that the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is to bring conviction of sin. Do you see that? It's not to cause someone to speak in tongues. It's not to call someone to perform miracles. It's not to call someone to do great and wonderful deeds. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction of sin. And where there is no conviction of sin, there is no move of the Holy Spirit. You with me? That we talk about we want great revival. You hear this all the time, right? Hey, we want to see revival in our schools every revival, true revival throughout christian history started with a great confessing of sin. Even the revival that you see in acts chapter 2, what happens? They're filled with the holy spirit and they begin to prophesy, they begin to preach the gospel in different languages and people are hearing this preaching of the gospel and what happens? Peter ultimately gets up and he preaches to the crowd and he and he preaches to them and the very what does the scripture say? It says that they were cut to the heart they were convicted of their sin in that moment. And ultimately what happened was 3,000 people were saved that day. That was an amazing revival move of the Holy Spirit that started with the conviction of sin. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction of sin. Now remember that the Holy Spirit is a gift to be cherished. He is a gift to be cherished. So what should we conclude? We can conclude that conviction of sin is a gift of God that we should cherish rather than run from. Right, If the Holy Spirit is a gift, and the Holy Spirit's primary role is to bring conviction of sin, then likewise, we can conclude that to be convicted of sin is something to be cherished and not run from. Burke Parsons has a quote. He says, conviction of sin is one of God's greatest gifts. So with that, we need to understand what conviction is. Right? Does it make sense? We need to understand what conviction is. We can use these Christian terms all day long, but if we don't understand what they mean, then it doesn't really mean anything. Right? We need to know what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to convict? What is conviction? I have many people that ask me this question. They say, what's the difference between conviction and guilt? Have you ever heard that question? Right? Have you ever asked that question? I know I have. What's the difference between conviction and guilt? Well, first of all, guilt is not of God, and conviction is but let's dive a little bit deeper to understand this idea, okay? Biblically, the word conviction within this context literally means to prove something to be wrong, to bring something to the light so that it cannot be denied. Does that make sense? A conviction is to prove something to be wrong and to bring it to the light so that, so that it cannot be denied. So when we say that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, what we are saying is that he, that the Holy Spirit makes us aware of our sinfulness and exposes the true nature of our sins. That he brings our sins to light. He makes us aware of our sins. Now, who is the sin being exposed to? The sin is being exposed to the one that has committed the sin. Right? So my sin... Conviction of the Holy Spirit for me is, my, is the Holy Spirit exposing my sin to myself so that I stand before God. I stand face to face with the reality of my sin. See, to be, convicted of, to be convicted by the Holy Spirit is to be led by the Holy Spirit to a point that you stand face to face with the reality of your sin and to have your sins exposed to yourself. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 46, what does Jesus say? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and to the scribes. He says, Which of you convicts me of sin? All right, which one of you can convict me of sin? What he's saying is, Which one of you can expose my sins? Show me, bring one of my sins to light. And no one can do it. So the first response of a Christian is an acknowledgment and an awareness of their sin. In the story of David and Bathsheba, we see this when Nathan rebukes David, right? Nathan calls David out for his sin, and David is made aware of his sin. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David said, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice that Nathan does not convict. You see that? Nathan doesn't convict. Nathan presents the evidence and it is up to the Holy Spirit to convict and bring acknowledgement. Right? here's the thing guys, that it is not your job or my job to convict the world of their sin. Now, we don't lie and we don't sugarcoat truth, but we call sin sin and we pray for the Holy Spirit to convict the person of it. We don't beat people over the head with their sinfulness. We don't dismiss it we don't ignore it we acknowledge it and we trust that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction right the Holy Spirit is what brings acknowledgement of sin to the person as Christians we do not deny when we sin do you hear me because the Holy Spirit brings conviction conviction when we sin we don't deny it first John 1: 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We do not give excuses. We do not say that I'm, I do not sin. I, we do not say that I've gone this many years without sin. That's not true. You see what 1 John says. It says, if we say that we have no sin, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit does not reside within us, because if he did, he would never say that we are without sin. See, one of the signs that you are growing in your maturity as a Christian is that you are also growing in your understanding of just how sinful you actually are. We are constantly growing. The Holy Spirit is constantly convicting and bringing to light our sin. We see this conviction all throughout Psalm 51. David is ever aware of his sin. In verse 3, he says that my sin is ever before me. I can't deny it. I will not make excuses for it. I will acknowledge it for what it is. Now, often, what is accompanied with conviction is the brokenness that we feel because of it. Understand this, that the feeling of brokenness over sin is not conviction. Conviction is the awareness and the acknowledgement of sin. And what oftentimes accompanies conviction is the brokenness that we feel because of our sin. Does that make sense? Okay. So to differentiate between conviction and guilt, conviction can oftentimes lead to brokenness. Okay. But conviction is not the brokenness. Conviction is the awareness and the acknowledgement that the sin of the sin that has been brought to light to you. See, when you are made aware of your sin, there's a sadness that accompanies it. I think of a doctor that brings to the patient the diagnosis that they have cancer. When the reality, think about that. Think about being a patient. The doctor comes in and says, Mr. and Mrs., you know, or whatever, say, hey, Yeah, it's cancer. And how that diagnosis brings with it emotion. That diagnosis brings with it sadness. The The emotions of such a diagnosis run deep because the patient understands the gravity of the situation. Likewise, the mature Christian understands that the diagnosis of sin as being much worse than that of cancer. The diagnosis of sin... Brings with it sadness, and because of this diagnosis, it brings sadness and brokenness. To receive the diagnosis that you are a sinner, to be made aware of your sin, should break your heart. Psalm, 50, Psalm 51, verse 17. What is David, David describes this as a broken spirit, or a broken and contrite heart. Now, you're probably thinking, man... A constant awareness of my sin that leads me to feel broken? How is that a beautiful gift? How is that a beautiful gift? Well, let's go back to the idea of the doctor that brings the diagnosis, right? Let's go back to that idea. If the patient does not have an awareness of their cancer, and they are not saddened over their diagnosis, then they will not be led to the treatment and the solution of their sickness. Does that make sense? That if a patient that has cancer is not told they have cancer, if they don't experience that heartbreaking moment, they will never seek the treatment to cure the cancer. Ultimately, they will die in their cancer. For a doctor to, for a doctor to know that a patient has cancer and to withhold that information is not loving. It's not. If anything, it would be considered unethical, And that doctor would not be allowed to practice medicine anymore. However, we say when people come into our church and we don't address sin, we say we're being loving. When we withhold the diagnosis, we do it in the name of love. But in no other situation will we attribute love to that. See, that's what makes conviction of sin beautiful. You see, it is an awareness and brokenness over sin that leads the sinner to the treatment of their sin, that being the blood of Jesus. Do you see that? That if you were not, if you did not have conviction and brokenness over sin, you would not run to Christ. Does that make sense? You see, conviction is not designed to lead to shame, but rather to confession and sanctification. See, the devil is known all throughout Scripture as the accuser. Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. See, the Holy Spirit convicts and brings sin to light. And Satan will then take that conviction and seek to use it as a tool to accuse and to heap shame. See, Satan works in one of two ways. He will keep a person blind to their sin, thus making confession and repentance unnecessary to that person. Or he will heap and accuse them and he will heap shame upon them to make them feel that repentance and forgiveness are unattainable. Do you see that? One of two things will happen. Satan will either keep them blind to their sin so that when it comes to forgiveness and repentance, they're like, I don't need it. Or, once they are made aware of it, he will heap shame and regret and guilt to the point to where they now feel that forgiveness and repentance are unattainable for them. Both are incorrect. The Holy Spirit brings awareness of our sins, and with this awareness, the Christian is broken over their sins, which leads them to confession. Does that make sense? Is anyone speaking English in here? Does that make sense? Okay, it's very important that that makes sense. Okay, conviction is meant to lead to our second point, which is confession. Now, David is aware of his sin, right? We get this from Psalm 51 where he confesses it. The same is true for us. You see, as you grow in your relationship with God, you'll become increasingly aware of your sin. And increasingly more appreciative for God's grace. See, it's not just simply an awareness of sin, but it's an awareness of sin. And as the more you grow aware of your sin as a mature believer, the more appreciative you are that God's grace is there. Right? Naturally, a confession of sin should, bring a, should be a regular practice amongst Christians. Not, now when I say confession, I don't mean you get into a booth with some guy and you call him father and you tell your sins to him, and he tells you, go say this many Hail Marys and this many Jumping Jacks, and then you'll be forgiven of your sins. That's not biblical confession. It's nowhere in Scripture. In fact, Jesus even says, to not call anyone father of other than your Heavenly Father in a spiritual sense. Okay? So that's not what we mean by confession. We mean, ultimately, this idea of confessing our sins to God in prayer. Scripture demands that we continually confess our sins to one another and to God. 1 John 1, 9. What? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, as we look at David's confession here, as we look at his, his confession and his cry for of repentance, we will see that there are three aspects to biblical confession. There's a lot in this tonight. So if you're not tracking with me, pick up, okay? There's three aspects to biblical confession an understanding of God, an understanding of sin, and an understanding of self. An understanding of God, an understanding of sin, an understanding of self. What we're going to do is we're going to look at those three aspects, right? There's three aspects of biblical confession. First, an understanding of God. Verse 1. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David opens his prayer straightforward and honest. Have mercy on me, O God. You see, the beauty of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin is that it forces us to stop trying to justify. Many of us... Rather than being confronted in our sin, we seek to justify our sin. We try to give reasons for why we sin to make it to to where our sin actually isn't our fault, that we're actually just a victim. We're just a victim. No, conviction of sin, biblical, Holy Spirit-driven conviction, brings awareness of sin to the point to where there is no excuse, there is no justification, that is straight up, this is what it is. And when you are at that point, you cannot stand before God and try to explain yourself. All you can do is say, Father, have mercy on me. And not enough Christians, quote unquote, have this mentality. We seek to impress God with our spirituality. Rather than fall on our knees and just beg for mercy. David is at the end of justification, and he can only cry out, have mercy on me, O God. David doesn't stand before God and give his side of the story. He doesn't seek to deflect. He doesn't try to soften up what he has done. He simply cries out for mercy. And here's the question. Why do you think he does this? I believe that David is left... only to cry out for mercy because he understands that all he can do in the face of a holy God and in the reality of his sin is to just say, God, have mercy on me. See, some of us don't cry out for mercy because we think that we're good enough to not need it. We're good enough to not need it. See, David understood something that we need to understand tonight, that a proper view of confession comes from a proper view of God. A proper view of confession of sin comes from a proper view of God. If you see God as high, holy, and just, then you understand that there is no explanation to justify your actions. You see, sin is sin because God is God. Does that make sense? Sin is what it is because God is who he is. If God were not holy and just, then sin wouldn't be a problem. The greatest issue we face as humans is that God is eternally just and righteous, and we are completely wicked and sinful. That's the, that is the problem of everything right there. From that, that is our biggest issue. If you want to know what is the biggest problem in the world, it's not who's president. It's not our, you know, our, you know, our carbon emissions as a, as a country or as a, as, a, as a human race. The biggest problem that we have as people is that God is holy, righteous, and just, and we are wicked and sinful. That is our problem. You know, I've had a lot of people ask me questions over the years about sin. Many, que- many of the questions are questions that even I have asked myself. The question typically goes like this. Is it a sin to blank? Or is, it a s- or, or is blank a sin? Here's the thing. That is a good question to ask. If you've ever asked that question, don't feel bad. I asked that question. But I believe that part of the reason that we seek these questions is because in some aspect we lack in our understanding of who God is and his holiness. Psalm 50, literally, the psalm right before this, says that we make the mistake of thinking that God is like us. Well, it's not a sin to me. Well, you're not God. So it doesn't matter if it's a sin to you or not. See, our lack of understanding of God is what leads to a lack of understanding of what our sin is. All sin is understood best when we understand God first. All of our understanding of sin should start from an understanding of who God is. Then we can have a proper understanding of how we approach him in confession. David asks for mercy, but we need to look carefully at what David is appealing to. What does he say? He says, have mercy on me according to what? According to you what? Your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. What does David appeal to? David appeals to God's love and his mercy. David appeals to God. He says, have mercy on me according to you. David does not appeal to his good works. David doesn't say, God, have mercy on me because remember when I slayed Goliath? He doesn't say, have mercy on me, because remember all those times that I saved those sheep? He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me, because remember all those times that I went into battle for you? Remember that time that I could have killed Saul and taken my rightful spot as the king, but I didn't, because I knew that I was trusting in you rather than in my own strength? God, remember that? Remember all those things that I've done? God, according to that, forgive me. And you know what he would have gotten? No. No. We don't appeal to our goodness. David does not appeal to his track record. He appeals to the character of God. You see, there is nothing within us that causes God to owe us forgiveness. Understand that. There is nothing you have ever done or nothing you will ever do that will make it to where God owes you forgiveness. He forgives because he loves And he forgives because he is merciful. God doesn't forgive you because you owe because you deserve it. He doesn't forgive me because I deserve it. He forgives us because he loves us and he's merciful. And that's it. Exodus thirty four, six and seven. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, the Lord, sorry, the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. See, God is abounding in mercy and he's abounding in his mercy and in his love. And it never runs out. Lamentations 3 says that his mercies are new every single morning. Heard a quote today. says that if our sins were as many as the hairs on our head, then his mercy is as many as the stars in the sky. Your sin will never reach the end of God's mercy, will never reach the end of God's grace, will never reach the end of God's love. And that's why I love that verse in Lamentations 3 where it says that when I wake up in the morning, when I feel like I've used all of God's mercies, I used up all the mercy he had for me that day, I wake up in the morning, there's new mercies every morning. We have confidence that God can forgive, not because we have a low view of our sins, but because we have a high view of God. When you have a high view of God, you have a high view of his grace and his mercy and his love. When you sin, you run to him. When we sin, we don't try to convince God to forgive us. We confess our sins to him knowing that he has forgiven us, but not based on our efforts, but strictly based on him. God, thank you for forgiving me because you choose to. We remember that God is just against sin, but we can't forget that he is loving and he is merciful. God desires to forgive you. Do you understand that? That God wants to forgive. God desires to forgive you. God desires to forgive your sins because that's what Jesus' sacrifice was for. Jesus did not come to this world, suffer and die, taking the wrath of God for your sins and for mine, so that we can depend on our goodness and not his sacrifice. That's like saying, God, thanks, but I got it. Man. When we run and confess to God, knowing that he welcomes us lovingly and mercifully, rather than vengefully and wrathfully. We are, in essence, showing gratitude for the cross and the acknowledgement of who he is. If you have an imbalanced view of God, you'll have an incorrect view of confessing your sin, and you'll struggle to do so. So you have have to have a proper understanding of God. Second, you have to have a proper understanding of sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Because David had a correct understanding of God, it led him to humbly cry out for mercy, but it also allows him to have a proper understanding of his sin. He says what? For my sins are ever before me. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Now, This could mean that David simply had a constant awareness of his sin, but I think that this also could be understand this, that he's alluding to the fact that the results and the consequences of his sin and the results and the consequences of his actions are ever before him. Sin has consequences. You know that, right? My sin has consequences. And oftentimes those consequences may be brief, but oftentimes those consequences can be long-lasting. Not simply just an awareness of our sin, but oftentimes we're faced every day with the consequences of decisions that we've made long ago. And one thing that David knew about sin is that sin leads to consequences. And while we are spared the eternal consequences of our sin, we still face and live. We, feel st- we still face and live in a broken world as a result of our sinfulness. Sin has lasting effects. And just because those consequences remain, that does not mean that God has not forgiven you. Do you hear that? If you have made mistakes in the past and the consequences of that decision are still ever before your face, that does not mean that God has not forgiven you. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, when I first see this statement, I don't know about you, but my first thought is that that's not really true, is it? Because who else has David sinned against? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against their families. He sinned against the kingdom of Israel. He sinned against his servants. And because it was sexual sin, according to 1 Corinthians 6.18, he sinned against his own body. However, all of those fall to the background when he understands the gravity of his sin against God. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7-12. through 12. This is when Nathan, Nathan rebukes David. Nathan goes to the king and tells him, you done messed up. He says this in verse tw- 7. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed this. Now listen to what God tells David. That's what God tells David. He says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. and I gave you your master's house and your master's wife, wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own household. Remember what what happened with David's son, right? He's seeking to kill him. You remember that? Boom, direct result from this. I will raise up evil against you in your own household, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel. Hello. See, when we have a high view of God, it forces us to have a high view of the reality of our sin. You see, it is not strictly the action, but rather who the action is against that determines the severity of what we've done. You already know the illustration I would give right now. It's who we have sinned against. And if you don't think your sin is that big of a deal, it's because you don't have a high enough view of God. While we sin against others, ultimately, we sin against God to the furthest, right? That it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And because of the reality of our sin, God would be just to judge us. Our sins are evil. They're not something to joke about, and they're not something that we make light of. Sin is evil. However, even though God could judge us, he chooses not to because why? He's loving and merciful. So when I properly understand God, it causes me to run to him and not away from him. And when I properly understand my sin, it causes me to not take my sin lightly, but to understand the seriousness of it. However, because I understand God, I confess my sins with confidence that even though I deserve his judgment, he graciously is merciful towards me. So. Biblical confession, a right understanding of God, a right understanding of sin. Last thing uh, is a right understanding of self. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we have this line, and at first, it could, see, it could be seen as David trying to make an excuse, right? God, it isn't my fault. I was born this way. However, what David is doing here is acknowledging that it's not strictly his actions that need to be cleansed. It's his entire being. It's who he is that is the problem. David understood that what the, pro- the problem is not strictly what he did, but rather it is who he is as a sinner that led to what he did. You with me? It's not simply the actions of sin, but it's who we are as sinners that leads to the actions that, we, that cause problems. You see, when we bring our sins to God, we are bringing ourselves along with it. You see, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, and that's what we do. And this is critical. This is so important to understand because as long as you see sin as something that is outside of you that you occasionally dip your toe in, you'll have a totally wrong understanding of what salvation is. you have a totally wrong understanding of what confession of sin is. You'll misunderstand what exactly Jesus came to do on the cross. Jesus did not come to simply clean up your actions. He came to change who you are. And this is how we get people who like to take Jesus, like we take part of Jesus. Jesus is a part of my life, right? That Jesus kind of cleans up my morals and my actions. Why? It's because we see sin as something that's separate from us rather than who we are. When you understand that sin is who you are at the core. then there is no other option than to present your entire self to God and say, God, I need to be changed. Thank you that I'm forgiven, but God, I need to be changed. This, this, this is one of the main verses that talks about this idea of original sin, that we are born as sinners. So many times in our battle and our struggle against sin, we seek to fix the external behaviors, and we do this to little success because the problem is not what we're doing. The problem is who we are. And we get discouraged and we get frustrated because I don't see the progress that I should be seeing in cleaning up what I'm doing and cleaning up my sin. Because here's the thing. You're not addressing the main issue. The main issue is who you are. So rather than seeking to expel the sin out of yourself, w- just based off pure willpower, you know what you do? Is you allow God, through his word, through prayer, through the church, through the preaching of the word, through the, through the worshiping of him through song, through reading his word, All the, you allow that to pour into you, and to pour into you, and to pour into you, and to change you, and to change you, and to change you, and then eventually, the sin that you once loved, you now hate, and the God that you once hate, you now love. It's an exchange, not simply of actions, but it's an exchange of nature. What does Corinthians say? That Paul says to the church of Corinth, he says what? He goes that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could what? Act righteous? No, to be righteous. It's an exchange. The problem is our nature. The point is never more prominent than right now in our culture, Right? We live in a culture today that society tells you, and it tells me, that you need to explore your true self. Right? You need to find who you really are. And if you feel uncomfortable, it's because then you're not being who you truly are. That you need to find who you are at your core. You need to find your true self, and you need to embrace it. People that engage in sexual, sexually sinful behavior justify their actions by saying, I was born this way. Right. This is my true self. Well, here's the problem. Your true self is your problem. It's my problem. I was born this way. Yeah, that's why you need to be born again. John three. Look, we're all born naturally inclined to sin. Just because you're naturally inclined to a specific sin does not mean that that is who you are. Or who God has destined you to be. There is no other sin. Notice this. There is no other sin that just because you feel inclined to do it, we say you need to embrace it. But we do this with sexual sin. But really specific sexual sins, right? Homosexuality. So, like, if somebody has this, you know, like, not to be crude, but if someone has the urge to just just do terrible things to multiple people sexually, we would never say, well, you need to embrace that. That's who you are. We would never say that. If I had the urge to go out and just like shoot up a place, a public place, no one would say, well, if that's who you are, if that's, you need to embrace your true self. We would never say that. See, the problem is our nature at its core. So you can't use that to justify your sin. We've seen biblical confession, right? Biblical confession is right understanding of God, right understanding of sin, right understanding of self, presenting that to God. And now we see the last thing, and this is the last thing. So we saw conviction, confession, last thing is repentance. Super short. Bear with me. We've seen conviction. We've seen confession. We get to the remaining part of this psalm, and that is repentance. Now, many of us misunderstand repentance. We think that repentance is confession. See that? Many of us think that repentance is confession. Now, confession is a part of repentance, but it is not repentance. Likewise, if I took a bike seat, I would say that it is a part of the bike, but I would never take the bike seat and say, look, I got a bike. Right? See, confession is a part of repentance, but it is not repentance. Throughout the remainder of this psalm, David speaks of a deeper cleansing and a changing of who he is, right? Right? Starting at verse 6, he goes, behold, you delight in truth and in and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Why? Because the sin that we commit is because of who we are at the core. So if God changes who we are at the core, giving and taking our heart of stone, exchanging it for our heart of flesh, making us more like Christ on the inward part, right, what happens? The natural outflow of that is to be more like Jesus. Cast me not away from your presence, and take me, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Notice that this psalm takes a drastic change in its tone. David is now speaking of a changing of himself in a future life of glorifying God. See, the word repent is translated metanoeo uh, in Greek, which means literally a change of mind. In particular, in, in a biblical context, it's a change of one's mind concerning sin and concerning righteousness. Righteousness. So to hate the sin that you once loved and to love the God that you once hated. And this change of mind towards sin and towards righteousness then becomes manifested in the things that you do. Repentance is not, I'm sorry, God. That is not repentance. You with me? That's not repentance. That's a part of confession. That's not repentance. And going about your day. Likewise, repentance is not a one-time act that you treat like a flu shot and you're like, oh yeah, I repented, I took care of that. Repentance is an ongoing changing that goes on in the heart of a believer from the day that they are saved to the day that they die and see Jesus face to face. Repentance is an ongoing changing that goes on in the heart of a believer over the course of their life. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. Do you hear that? The life of a Christian is a life of continual repentance. Continual exchanging of this and a taking on of this. And while our repentance may not be perfect, his grace always is. We are not saved because we have perfect repentance. We are saved because he has perfect grace. True repentance is marked by a change moving forward. It is a change of thinking of sin and holiness that becomes manifested in the things that you do. You see, when we sin, we are convicted of our sins, and that conviction leads to confession. And through that confession, we repent and we rely more on the mercies and the grace of God to help us live a life that glorifies him moving forward. So what do you do with your sin? You acknowledge it. We don't run from it. We don't deny it. We don't boast in it. But we acknowledge it. And when I'm made aware of my sinfulness, I go to God in prayer and I confess my sins. Knowing who he is, that he is merciful, he is loving, and he is just. That he desires to forgive. Knowing that my sin is a serious offense. But because of what I know about him, he's the only one that I can go to. And understanding that it's not simply just the things that I do, but it's who I am. That, God, I need you to change who I am at its core, at my core. And when you do this, God, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's something that happens over the span of my life. That, God, I need you to continue to change me. Continue to make me more like Christ. Continue to take these things that I want, that these sins that I enjoy. And, Father, Father help me to, to be more like you. Here's the question. How can David make this plea with confidence? If you go to 2 Samuel 12, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And you know what Nathan says? Nathan says, God has forgiven your sins. What? Like there's a man who's dead. This, this woman's wife, or this woman's husband, is dead. She's pregnant. And you're just gonna say he's forgiven? How? How can David have such confidence that he's forgiven after the atrocities of what he's done? How can God forgive wickedness like this and still be just? Great question. Romans 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was, so that propitiation, that word is basically means that it was a, it t- to satisfy a debt. That Jesus' blood was to satisfy a debt. What was that debt? The debt that we owe to God because of our sinfulness. Now, why did he do this? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. What were the former sins that God had passed over? The sins of David, the sins of Moses, the sins of Noah, the sins of Jonah, the sins of Adam, the, right? All the prior sins. God just forgives them. How? How can God, how can you be just and forgive these sins? It says it right here. It was to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What it's saying is this, is that God, David could have confidence that God forgave him because David understood the promise of God that it would become a day where there would be someone who would save. And that David's sins are forgiven just like your sins and my sins are forgiven, that they were placed on Christ while he was on the cross. And I do not run from confession, but when I am burdened with conviction of my sin, I run to confession knowing that I can unload my sins onto him. And I could do so with joy in my heart, knowing that as I'm aware of my sins, I am even more aware that he is gracious and he is merciful and he is faithful to forgive me. Does that make sense? All of us in this instance are David. We're not Bathsheba. We're not the victim. We're not God. We're not Nathan. We're David over this course of your life, we're going to be made aware of our sins. We need to continually go to God with our sins, confessing them to one another, confessing them to God, and in so doing, asking that God would change us every day to be made more like Christ. Does that make sense? I just preach, like, a lot, a lot, okay? There's, like, enough content in there for a series. But, I figured it would be, I, I didn't know how to end it. That was the problem, right? Because, like, if I'm just going to be like, understand the reality of your sin. All right, see you next week. You know, like, that's no fun. I, I got to, like, put a bow on it somehow. So that's why I went long. But you're patient, and I appreciate that. All right, uh, so, hey, guys, so what we're going to do now is, it's eight eleven. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to let you guys go. Here's the thing, guys. As Christians, we're going to constantly struggle with sin. It's just reality. But like I said earlier, the mark of a Christian is not that they don't sin. The mark of a Christian is that they know what to do when they sin. So if you leave here with nothing, leave here with that. All right? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we can run to you and that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins. God, thank you for the... Holy Spirit bringing awareness of sin. Father, that you, that, that, Father, thank you for that, the fact that you convict us, you make us aware of our sinfulness, and in that conviction, we can run to you in confession. And when we run to you in confession, we can do so knowing that it's not just what we do, but it's who we are. And God, that you sent Jesus to change who we are, to make us more like you. Father, I thank you for that. That God, that you present us before you as righteous not of our own doing, but strictly because of the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus. God, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for everyone in this room. God, if there's anyone in this room that is not trusting in you for salvation, Father, I ask that you would draw them to yourself. God, I thank you. I praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, guys, love, peace, and chicken grease. I will talk to you later.